murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. Welcome to True Law Stories. I'm Garlic here, and today we're going to be talking about uh, employment law again, ADA, Compliance, American with, uh, Disabilities Act, actually one of the very first cases to ever go to trial, as well as, speaking of first, trial that this attorney was thrown into, Carlos Berezzo from the Berezzo Berezzo Law Firm. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Glad to be here. And this is the second half of our Berezzo Berezzo interviews. We had Bertha on. And, Awesome interview, some crazy stories there. But you know, today we're also going to talk more about these employment law stories. But they're super interesting because they really encapsulate our life. We forget, you know, Bertha really talked about how law is or employment is such a big part of our entire life, and I think we we don't realize the law that comes around it. So I'm excited to talk about that. So Carlos, tell us a little bit about, before we get going, you've got an extensive background. Let's talk a little bit about how you got into employment law and all the amazing things you've done. Okay. Yeah. I've been practicing for about 33 years now. I went to law school in New York, came to Florida, Central Florida to begin my practice. And at my first law firm, I was um, practicing general commercial litigation. And luckily, the, the partner who, who was working at that firm was in charge of employment law. And so one, one day, he walks to my office and says, Carlos, I have a case I'd like you to work on. And so it just was an employment case. It was a sexual harassment case. And it was a really fun case to, uh, to work on. And so I decided at that moment, within six months of my starting my career as a commercial litigator, that I want to do employment law. I'd never taken an employment law course in law school. They were available, but I never took one. Never thought I'd have an interest in it. But after having worked on that case and, and uh, understanding that the, the law in, that, in the employment arena really affects real people with real lives and everyday activities was really appealing to me. Unlike a traditional commercial case where really you argue about the terms of a contract or the meaning of, of words in a contract, or argue about antitrust concepts or issues or real estate litigation. For me, this was really interesting and real because it involved the workplace, it impacted people and how they live their professional lives. So, you know, we're gonna talk about your first trial, but when did you first get involved with the American Disabilities Act and how did you end up, you know, getting into this case? Because it, it seems like it's been always been there, but it wasn't always there. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. I, at the time, I was working for a national labor employment boutique law firm based in New York. And so uh, he had a, a very big, the, the, law, the, the partner in New York City had a very big client. And so uh, he actually called me up one day. I'd never really met him before. He called me and said, hey, I'm so-and-so from uh, Park Avenue in New York. And so I hear, I hear from the managing partner of our land office that you're, you're pretty good at what you do. And so he said, I want you to, to uh, know something. I'm the most important partner in the law firm. <laughs> he says, uh, you want to, you want to uh, please me and make me happy when you work on my files. And so I've chosen to uh, get your assistance on this case. It's a brand new case that was filed in Central Florida involving an employee who's raising a claim under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it's probably one of the first cases filed under the ADA. Uh, it's a very important client, and you need to do a good job for me. I said, I, I got it, I'm on it, and I'll do it. Yeah, it was. So this was the, the ADA, which was passed in 1990, became effective into law in 1992. 
So I got this call very early on in 1994, and it takes a while for cases to percolate through the system. So uh, the, the lawsuit was filed in the early part, I believe in January of 1994, by an employee who had unfortunately suffered a brain aneurysm at work. And so uh, when it was time after his recovery to come back to work, he had asked his employer under the ADA to provide him an accommodation. And the accommodation that he wanted was the assistance of a, of a second person, someone to be hired to help him do a certain part of his job. His brain aneurysm left him with uh, a seeing impairment. He lost his ability to see peripherally and he had limited vision in one eye. And his job uh, involved, he was in the camera department of the newspaper where, where he was working. And his job involved very detailed work as it related to lining up of color negatives. Um, and he had to line up the negatives perfectly and he couldn't do that part of his job. And so he asked uh, that his employer provide him an accommodation, a second person to shadow him and, and help him do his job. And his employer refused to provide that accommodation. And that was the entire case. It, that, 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 that unwillingness to give that accommodation to that employee because the employer's view was that it was an undue hardship to hire a second person to do that person's uh, main job was was not cost effective and it was not something that was necessary under the law. So that entire case was involving that issue and it was a fascinating issue because it involved every imaginable ABA concept uh, at a time that no one really knew what the law meant. Nobody knew what a person with disabilities really actually meant in practice. No one knew what a qualified individual with disability meant under law. No one knew really what essential functions meant. And all these concepts, these legal terms in the law were challenged in this case. It was really interesting. Uh, and I was lucky to, to work on it. The case ultimately went, went to trial. Um, and we obtained a defense verdict on behalf of our client at trial. So it was a really a meaningful development. And the case was the subject of appellate opinions and was, has been cited repeatedly in other cases as precedent on how to deal with these particular ADA concepts. That's, uh, yeah, there's so much stuff back there. Um, so, I mean, my first question is, you know, you're, we always think of law as this thing that's hundreds, if not thousands of years old, very mm -hmm. basic concepts. But, you know, when we get into new workplace concepts like the ADA Act, you've got to figure that stuff out and you've got to figure it out and how it incorporates, like you were saying, because no one had ever really brought this to bear. How do you incorporate these new concepts and interweave them into older law concepts and bring them eventually to trial? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And so, you know, what happens is, well, in the, in the case of the ADA, Congress passed this law and they thought that by fashioning the law in a certain way that it would meet the overall purpose, which was to encourage persons with disabilities to come into the workplace. The, the feeling at the time was not a sufficient number of disabled persons were contributing in the workplace because of discrimination, that people were being discriminated against on the basis of a mental or physical impairment. So Congress came up with these terms of arts, uh, like uh, just the word disability. What exactly does that mean? We, we have, we have a, 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 uh, a you know, sort of a, a layperson's view of what a disabled person might look like or be. But in reality, it's a lot more complicated than just, just what you might think uh, in very terms. There are other terms like qualified individual disability, what undue hardship means, what does essential functions of doing your job mean? And so while Congress passed a law that seems to give a definitional basis to what they are, in practice, it's very different. Every workplace is different. Every job is different. Job description is different. 
So how you apply those concepts and what the words on the on the document on the statute book says vis-a-vis what you actually have to do in practice, that's the rub. And that's where the cases develop. Like in the case I just mentioned, for example, uh, in that particular case, the employer knew that it had a legal duty to provide an accommodation unless it, ca- it unless it causes an undue hardship. And so the struggle there was, well, what is an undue hardship? There are no cases that have decided prior to this one what undue hardship really is in the ADA uh, context. So is hiring someone on a part-time basis to assist an employee to do their job, would that be a reasonable accommodation or would that be an undue hardship? And so that's, and that's what this case developed. It helped develop definition. In this particular case, uh, we established a law that basically said hiring a second person to do someone's primary job duties is not a reasonable accommodation. That would be an undue hardship. And that hadn't been decided before. Wow, that's fascinating. And, you know, when you're going through this process, I, I mean, to me, it seems, you know, and also, in fact, I'm an employer, not to, to say anything, but it seems like if you have to hire two people to do one person's job, it is an undue hardship. But obviously, it's not as simple as that. How do, what were the elements that you had to bring to bear to show that? Well, the elements would be, um, there are a lot of, another, you know, and I know that this drives non-lawyers crazy when we say things like, well, you know, everything is a case-by-case basis or yes, but, you know, sometimes clients will call you and say, hey, what is the answer? Well, this could be the answer or this could be the answer because there are a lot of moving targets and things are really on a case-by-case analysis. So in that particular, in that particular case, um, the, the, the particular department where that employee worked was a department of three people. And each person had a meaningful job to do within that department in order for that department to run effectively. And so when he had his brain aneurysm and he went out on, uh, to, to rehabilitate um, his, his condition, they brought in someone to do the job while he was there. But uh, part, of the, part of the issue was when he recuperated and when he got better, we would bring him back and the person that was there, we would you know, either transition out or move someplace else. So in that case where you have a three-person department, and that's really the, the department can, can stand, to hire a fourth person to do the third person's or the primary person's part of his job under that scenario would be an undue hardship uh, because it's just a small department with few people. But let's say the department had 100 people. Um, and it was a very large department, you probably in that instance could say it wouldn't be an undue hardship to have one of the other 99 people do this part of the job that this employee couldn't do because of his injury. That might not be an undue hardship under those circumstances because it's a big department, lots of employees, and you can shift job duties around to help this person. But given that it was a very tiny department, it was, in our view, an undue hardship for them to do that. Interesting, interesting. And since then, you've handled a lot of ADA cases. I'm, and how, you know, how, has, how have you seen the law evolve? And how have you seen what you did then affect? Because you said it's now cited. How have you, like, do you have any specific examples where you've seen it actually being, how, it's, how it was used and what you did set the precedent? Yeah, and in fact, it's kind of interesting. It was as a result of that case, you know, other cases that came up, we relied and cited that case in assessing um, the standards for any particular issues that come up. And what's, what's really interesting is that that case, as well as others that came afterward, and the way judges interpreted the ADA, um, it became a very narrow law. In other words, it became one of those laws that was not effectively 
was not to be was not effectively used by plaintiffs because the law developed in a way that the plaintiffs could not establish what these legal burdens were given the way judges were interpreting the law. It became very, very narrow and very few cases were successful in the A-Day arena. And in co Congress, remember that law was passed in 1990, became effective in 1992. So over the course of that maybe 15 year period, the law was being interpreted by judges very narrowly, meaning not many people were successful in enforcing their rights under the ADA. Most cases that were filed in the ADA were dismissed by courts, saying uh, you didn't qualify, you're not a qualified individual with disability, you don't really have a real disability, uh, and, and so the law was narrowly um, interpreted. In 2009, Congress amended the ADA to uh, reverse, essentially, all of those judges' decisions that narrowly interpreted the law imposing new legal duties on employers to make it broad and, and broader as the original intent. So in 2009, basically the law was rewritten and um, it really made it more available for plaintiffs to use. And so now uh, most people who file a claim under the ADA uh, are more successful in pursuing that claim and, and they're not as easily dismissed because of the changes in the law and the way Congress uh, required employers to do different things to ensure their um, duty to reasonably accommodate persons. So the kind of, there's kind of been a, a, a flip. And so early on, the law was really in, in favor of employers and a lot of employers dismissed these cases. In recent years, since 2009, the last you know, 12 or so years, the law really is now a, a pro-employee uh, in its interpretation. And it's been an interesting evolution to see. So the case that I w first handled, it's still cited, uh, but it's not cited as effectively because of the material change in the law. Interesting. That's that's an amazing. I mean, that's an amazing experience. And so, speaking of experience, you know, you this wasn't your first case, obviously, mm -hmm. but you were talking about just getting thrown. I mean, because that's what law is—you get thrown into all this different stuff. And employment law is probably one of the most mm -hmm. changing types of law out there. Tell me about your first trial, though, because that seems pretty interesting. Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting experience. I, this was in 1997. I remember it like yesterday because it was probably the, the most meaningful experience that I've had as, as a lawyer. Where I was forced to do things at a time that I didn't think I was prepared to do. But I was handling a case uh, uh, involving a, a major retail company. I was I was representing the company in a case that was filed by uh, an, an, an employee former employee of that retail company who had claimed that he was being discriminated against on the basis of his, his religion, uh, his race, his gender. He had sort of a kitchen sink complaint. He had multiple, multiple uh, claims in his lawsuit. And so I had handled the case for the, for the most part. I took all the depositions. I did the court hearings. I did everything leading up. And then when we got to the trial, typically speaking, what happens at a trial is that you're paired up with with um, a lawyer who is very experienced in that area. So I was paired up with a lawyer who had 35 years of experience, had been a former prosecutor, had had dozens and dozens of trials in the course of his career. And so I was his second chair. I was, I was his backup. And my responsibility was to do the minor things of the trial, uh, question uh, you know, witnesses who didn't have really a big impact on the outcome. Um, and so that was my role. So it was a week-long trial in federal court in Orlando and uh, we, we started day one, and we, he, uh, my, my partner, he did opening statements, and he 
call the first witness and he was doing his thing. Um, but for whatever reason, the client representative who was with us at the trial didn't think that my much more experienced trial partner was doing a good job or that the jury didn't jury was not connecting with him. Um, come midday, day two, I did a couple of minor witnesses on direct examination. I was doing some stuff. We go to a lunch break and uh, we're having lunch with the client. And she says, uh, you know, she goes, part of my job is to be honest with my counsel, right? And so, so of course. And so she looks at my trial partner. And she says, the jury doesn't like you. And uh, I'm not saying you're doing a jo good job, but they just, they just don't like you. I can tell they don't like you. When Carlos stands up, however, they look at him, they smile at him. Um, they've got a rapport with him. They really find him credible. And so I'm making a change. And so she says, moving forward, I want Carlos to handle the entire trial and they're all witnesses. And I want him to do um, everything uh, in the case till closing arguments. And I was, uh, I was stunned. I was floored. I was not expecting that to happen, uh, nor, nor did I feel that I, I was adequately prepared or sufficiently experienced to be able to take on such a large responsibility. And of course, uh, you said, whatever you want, uh, uh, Madam Client, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, and so, but I went home that night, afternoon after trial, I pulled an all-nighter preparing for the following day. The, the following morning, I'm sure I was uh, not looking too good. I had been up all night. I was actually feeling very emotional about this tremendous pressure to take on this trial all by myself for the remaining four and a half days. Uh, and so, uh, and so I, you know, I talked to my wife. I said, I don't think I could do this and I'm not prepared for this. You have to do it. Just do it no matter what. So I did. It was it was an incredible experience for me to cross-examine. I never, I really had wasn't even that experienced cross-examining witnesses, and that's an art of itself. Um, so I had to basically learn on the spot um, to do all these things and to handle all witnesses, even witnesses I wasn't even prepared to question at the preparation stage. I did it all by myself, and uh, I, so at the end of Friday we had closing arguments. The jury was out for two hours. They came back. And they ruled in my client's favor. And it was just, it was an, an incredible experience. Uh, it was probably one of the most emotional, challenging times I, I had ever, ever encountered uh, professionally. It was every emotion uh, was percolating in my mind at the time that I didn't think I could handle it. But apparently I did. It was good. Well, congratulations. That's amazing. And you know, when you're doing that, where there's a moment during the trial where you're like, oh, this is going completely wrong. And you're like, I, I don't know if I've got this. Absolutely. Uh, I absolutely had those feelings um, throughout the week, not, not just overnight and that night that I was preparing to take it over. I said to myself, I even contemplated, I said to myself, you know, I'm not even sure I'm not, I'm not good at this. I don't think I can do this. I'm not prepared to do this. And maybe the courtroom was not where I need to be. <clears throat> Maybe I just need to be behind a desk and be that kind of lawyer because I, I felt the pressure really overwhelming. I was at the time, uh, let's see, I was 24 when I graduated high school. So I was probably 31 or 32 and uh, was an eight year, seven or eight year lawyer. And uh, I just I just didn't feel I had the, the metal to do it. But the client, I guess, saw something that I didn't see in myself. Was there a point where you thought, Oh, I, I'm, I'm actually doing well. Did you ever think that like, I, I, this is going the right way or were you nervous up until the, the results came back? 
I was nervous throughout the process, but there were there were occasions uh, like I uh, when I when I when I got to cross examine the plaintiff, and luckily I had taken I had taken his deposition uh, in advance during the litigation phase of the case, and so he and I had a, actually a very good rapport. And so what was interesting about the case and what the client told me about the case is usually when you're questioning a witness, right? It's sort of a it's sort of a it, it's it's a power struggle. In other words, you you are in a in a in a in a power struggle with with the with the, the person on the witness stand, and it's a control process. Who's controlling who? Is a lawyer controlling the 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 testimony, or is the witness getting the the, the better hand in this process? And so, what was interesting about the case, and what the client thought was really noticeable and meaningful, and made all the difference, um, was that when I was cross examining the plaintiff. He and I had built such a good rapport with each other during the litigation process um, that he would call me by my first name. So I would ask him questions at trial, and you know, isn't it true that whatever whatever the cross? And he would say, "Yes, Carlos, that that's true," or "No, Carlos, that's not that's not exactly what occurred." But it was that first name where he treated me and called me my first name that the client thought made all the difference because. Um, if he had been more formal with me, it would have, there would have been a more more of a disconnect, uh, and he thought that the client thought that the plaintiff's use of my first name and his conversation with me gave me more credibility with with the jury, and so it was it was just that just that little thing, little nuance that they said made all the difference in the world. And I prepared uh, really hard for my closing arguments. And I felt, you know, to your point, you know, was there ever a point in time where you feel that you had control, you did good. I think my closing argument was also really extremely well done. If I do say so myself, it was, it was a really powerful the way I weaved in what the evidence was at trial. And I used the theme, you know, I picked the theme um, to, to outline the argument. And uh, I think it went really well. I could tell as I was talking to the jury, and this is really what you do is you have a conversation with the jury in a closing argument. I could tell there was eye contact. There was affirmative nodding going on with what I was saying, and I could tell that it was it was there was a there was a rapport there, uh, and that they found me credible in what I was saying, uh, and I think that made made a big difference in the outcome too. And so, speaking of the outcome, that was what my question was going to be: is you know, how did you feel right before you learned the, the jury's decision, and when you and then when you heard it? Well, um, you know, you're nervous wreck sitting in the hallway for two hours when they're out deliberating. It's, you know, it's like uh, expecting a baby. You know, if, if, you're, if your wife is in uh, about to deliver a baby, you're not you know, sure how things are going to turn out. You're hoping for the best. Um, and that's the same sort of experience, sort of pacing the hallways. Then the bailiff comes out and says, uh, you know, the jury's back with a verdict or whatever. And so you're sitting at council table and you're just everybody standing up. The jury's coming in. And uh, I was I was not knowing. I, I felt confident or certain in the position, but you really don't know what the decision is, obviously, because they do do everything in secret. But as they were coming in, I noticed the jurors gave me eye contact as they were coming in, and before they sat down, they were looking at me and not at the other side. And that's a telltale sign when they don't look at the at the person who they if they don't look at a certain party, you can tell generally that they've ruled against that party or found against that party. So they gave me eye contact when they came in. So I knew at that moment that it was probably a, a verdict that was favorable to us.
Oh, it's super interesting. That's I, I've never heard that before. That's really mm-hmm. yeah, it's crazy to, mm-hmm. to feel that. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, this is awesome, awesome. And so since then, obviously, you've tried a bunch of cases. But tell us a little bit more about now. You're doing a lot of mediation, correct? Yeah, and, yeah. And I just want to learn what's the difference, and how is that different now for you? Well, you know, it's kind of an interesting. It's an interesting um, thing. Florida is one of those unique states uh, that looked to mediation as being a way to uh, bring down the heavy caseload that our, our judges have. Uh, Florida is, is a very litigious state. Lots of cases are filed on a daily basis in Florida. And so the courts decided that one way to help with the caseload is to figure out a way to get cases resolved and out of the system. And so Florida adopted a, a procedure maybe about 20 years ago now, maybe a little bit more, uh, that requires every single case filed in the state, whether it's federal or state, to go through this mediation process. And so it's it's an opportunity for the parties to lay down their arms and to have a conversation through an intermediary uh, like myself to help them problem solve and resolve their differences. So in litigation, what you do as an advocate is that you emphasize your client's strengths and de-emphasize their weaknesses in the hopes of convincing the ultimate fact finder that your version of the facts is the more believable version and is the one that should be adopted by the fact finder. Um, In the case of mediation, you have to cause both sides to not so much emphasize their strengths, but to look at their weaknesses and to understand that there are weaknesses in their position and their weaknesses could lead to an outcome they wouldn't want to have in the case. So as the mediator, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm going between the parties. I'm shuttling back and forth between the plaintiff and the defendant, talking with them about their expectations, talking with them about the weaknesses in the case and, and how those weaknesses might impact the ultimate outcome. And so what I try to do is I try to figure out from each side's perspective what's important to them, what expectations they might have, and figure out a way to fashion or at least cause the parties to fashion an outcome that makes sense. Now, both sides typically are very uncomfortable with the outcome at mediation because mediation requires compromise, um, and compromise often is difficult, especially, you know, not, not, to, not, to, not to get too much in a, uh, you know, discussion about social sciences, but the reality is we live in a very uh, difficult time, in my view, socially. You know, everybody wants what they want and don't want to compromise very much. Uh, it's a very, you know, whatever is happening in politics certainly happens in our society as well. So compromise is a very hard thing to do. But what I often tell people is, uh, if you've ever had a dispute with a family member or a loved one, you know that oftentimes to find peace to that solution, you have to do what's uncomfortable. You have to maybe apologize. You have to acknowledge some feelings. In order to make amends, you might have to do something that's really uncomfortable. Same thing is true in litigation. It requires both. Nobody wants to be in litigation. The, the person being sued doesn't want to be sued. The person suing doesn't really want to sue, but they feel they had no choice to do that. But there is a common interest in resolution. And so the goal is figuring out what that common interest might be and causing the, the, the persons to decide uh, to come together in, in some way that makes both uncomfortable, but makes sense because finality is important and uncertain outcome is not what anybody really wants. Yeah, it's a good point to be made because we definitely, like you said, everyone wants what they want, doesn't want to give up anything. 
which is a bad place to be. And it's good that you, you, you have this mediation. This has been fantastic, Carlos. Well, thank you so much. This has been Welcome. super interesting. And if someone wants to get a hold of you, we'll put links to the law firm. What's the best place to follow you? Are you are you active on LinkedIn? I know Bertha is. I'm moderately active on LinkedIn. I mean, I have a profile, but I don't really use it like she does. She's much better. You know, she's she's a lot younger than I am, so she uses uh, social media a lot better than I do. But I, I just kind of go on Twitter and read things. But I need to get better at it since we, this is 2022. Yeah. So we'll put links to your Twitter and to your LinkedIn so people can follow you, and you'll get people following you, and then you'll have to to post some stuff. So, but thank you so much for being on True Law Stories. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for uh, listening to True Law Stories and listening to Carlos. Make sure to reach out to him. Tell him what you liked about it. And if you obviously have any employment law issues uh, or if you're looking for a mediator, uh, look up Brezzo and Brezzo. We'll put a link in the show notes. But uh, it's been Iron Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by videocasestory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need video case stories for your business. Go to videocasestory.com to learn more.